Well, welcome all. Thanks uh, for coming again. If you're back for round two of this class, or maybe you're here for the first time, uh, if you did miss the first session, the, that's recorded and online. Um, I think that this probably will stand alone well enough, though, that you'll get a mid-course of the history of the Advent. And that is our topic, is the history of the Cathedral Church of the Advent. And again, Alice is going to, to lead us. And I forgot to, I failed to mention last time that Alice is an architectural historian, is that right, by, by background. Um, and she, uh, for, for going on uh, 20 years or so now, you've been the church historiographer, is that right? Uh, Paul Zoll's, Paul Zoll's term, term. yeah, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is an interesting way to say versus like a church archivist, which would be just somebody who maintains the archives, the material. Historiographer, someone who uh, who thinks about the history and what it means, doing actual history. Um, and Alice, uh, she uh, is a trained historian, and I've appreciated. We started this conversation a year and a half ago because of the Church Magazine. I wanted to include some archival material in it, so she was the go-to person. So she and I have had this conversation for about a year and a half now, and I appreciate the way that Alice thinks about history, that it's not just a collection of facts, but what do these these things mean um, uh, together? What is the interplay, and how does that inform uh, the the nature of the Advent to this day? Well, before we begin, why don't we say a prayer? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Cathedral Church of the Advent and those who've gone long before us, Lord, and we thank you for Alice um, for her thoughtful interpretation of these facts. Above all, Lord, would you um, open our ears and eyes uh, to see Jesus in this history uh, as we draw this uh, session to a close today, Lord. All these things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's all I'm going to say by way of introduction, and now hand it over to Alice. Thank you. Okay. Um, and if folks want to drag in some more chairs, feel free to. Or you can stand. All right. Help. Okay. Um, See, I had a thought while, oh, I know, while Matt was talking, um, which is to say, uh, thinking about how, what history means, you know, you, you may have come, you've come for all kinds of different reasons, but uh, I hope when we get to the um, questions and comments at the end of this that uh, I would love to hear your thoughts too about what history, what we've talked about last Sunday, this Sunday, maybe what I didn't touch on, uh, what that means to you, what you think it might mean to other other folks here, uh, and any thoughts you may have about making it come alive for yourself, for other people. Um, because that, to me, the point of uh, looking at history, uh, it can be really interesting, great old stories, but there's also kind of a so what factor, what does it mean for us now? So I'd love to hear 
your thoughts on that as well. Okay, let's see, let me get myself collected. Um, last week, we talked about the founding of the Advent in 1872, which was just a year after the city of Birmingham was founded. Uh, we talked about the turnover among rectors during the first 10 years and uh, really how that likely laid the groundwork for strong lay leadership that we enjoy today because there were something like six or seven different rectors and deacons in the first 10 years. Uh, we talked about how Thomas Jefferson Beard, he was the, the rector from 1882 to 1896, how he was the first in an important pattern of long-term rectors at the Advent. And he brought stability, real stability for the first time and, and growth during the 14 years he was here. Uh, while he was here, he oversaw two additions to the original church. The original church was just right back there. It was a, a, wood, a wood building built in 1872 or 73, we're not sure. But he oversaw two additions to that church and the construction of the church that we worship in today. We also touched on the important role of the women of the church including the Strawberry Festival that they hosted in 1893 as this church was nearing completion. Uh, the festival lasted from four in the afternoon till nearly midnight, we were told, and they held it to raise money to buy the pews that we sit in today. We talked about the importance of music in our worship from those earliest days, and I don't know, uh, how many of you noticed if you went up into the chancel to take communion this morning, that original pump organ that I talked about that Sam Ermey found and had restored for us, Charles Kennedy was playing it. Now it's about this big, but it, uh, it w I just happened to notice it this Sunday. Okay, today we're going to start in the fall of 1896, which is when John G. Murray here became rector of the Advent. The path that led him to the Advent and later to become presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States is really fascinating. I'm not going to go into all of it now, but uh, here's a, a quick outline. Mr. Murray grew up in Maryland and he hoped to become a Methodist minister. Uh, the death of his father caused him to leave his studies and go to work to support his family, first in Kansas, and then he came to Alabama. After his young wife and baby daughter drowned in a tragic accident, and we actually have a memorial window to his daughter that's in the back of the church of the Advent, uh, he moved to Selma after he lost both of them. Uh, he became a very successful businessman and he also joined the Episcopal Church and became a licensed lay reader. Well, a few years later, he was ordained as a minister and then in 
uh, as I said, in uh, 1896, he came to the Advent. Years later, Janie Livingston Green, long-term member of the Advent, who started out at St. John's Ellington. If you remember last time we talked about St. John's Ellington uh, was started in 1850, but their first, well, their second, but their first longer-term resident minister was the Advent's first minister, Philip Fitz. Well, Janie Livingston Green, uh, that's her brother in this middle row on the far right, Samuel Earl Green, who was a a judge in Birmingham. Uh, Janie Green wrote about uh, her memories and some stories about when Mr. Murray was at the Advent. And she started by saying, it's hard for any of us to realize that in the early history of the Church of the Advent, there were no candles on the altar, but such was the case. By 1896, that must have changed because then she goes on to tell this story. Uh, of how a prominent parishioner, whom she called an outstanding low churchman, you know, in the Episcopal Church we talk about high churchmen and low churchmen and broad churchmen. Well, this is the, uh, an outstanding low churchman, and he declared, I'll give $25 to anybody who will take those candles off the altar. And Mr. Murray replied to that, who'll give me more to keep them on? <laughs> I love that. She makes the point that Mr. Murray grew up a Methodist and he didn't care about the formalities of worship. He, he wasn't uh, determined to keep the candles on the altar, but he was a good businessman. And under his leadership, we know he was a good businessman. The church construction debt was paid off. So his business instincts served the church well. Well, in 1903, the year this picture was made, this is the, the vestry, Mr. Murray in the center, and the vestry all around him. Uh, in 1903, Mr. Murray was called to a church in Baltimore. And the vestry at that time told him, this is a quote, you leave us the largest, strongest, and most unified parish in the whole diocese of Alabama. Quincy Ewing was the next rector. He was here from 1903 to 1906. He was followed by William Evans, who served for the next six years. He was an ordained Methodist minister who then became an Episcopalian. Shortly after his arrival at the Advent, a parish house was built which was later expanded and then dedicated as Clingman Common. So the kind of the structure of it, although I'm sure it looks totally different, but was right here, um, dating from Mr. Evans. There were weekday Lenten services under Mr. Evans. Uh, he taught a weekly Shakespeare class, and evidently he took a strong interest in the music program as well. Last week we talked about Fred Grahams, who was the first professional uh, musician, choir master, and organist at the Advent, and I think that's Mr. Grahams on the second row, the back row on the far left. Remember, Mr. Grahams was here for 35 years. 
Uh, we have a program from the 1909 Easter service that looks a whole lot like the Easter music that we have today. Uh, it, it includes the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus, which we do every Easter. Well, after Mr. Evans came Middleton Barnwell. Uh, he came in 1913, and he was here for 11 years. His friends called him Barney, and uh, at least one person called him Possum. I don't know the background of that, but uh, I was told that from someone whose father was a friend of his. Outreach was strong under Mr. Barnwell's leadership, and it's interesting to me, he, he was here 1913 to 1923. We tend to think of the 20s, anyway, being a time of prosperity, but uh, outreach was clearly um, a, an interest of Mr. Barnwell's. The church founded a free neighborhood kindergarten to serve needy families. And uh, he helped, the, and the church helped organize the Children's Aid Society. A few years after his arrival, the United States entered World War I, and members of the Advent crossed the Atlantic to fight in the war, and two of them lost their lives. They're the first two names on the war memorial that you see uh, as you walk into the Meyer Chapel. In 1922, Bishop Coadjutor William McDowell, you, he's the person for whom Camp McDowell is named, he became the first bishop consecrated here at the Advent. Uh, this was 60 years before the Advent became the diocesan cathedral. But this, that's the first sort of concrete, that, that opened the door for a long-term relationship with the diocese. Bishop McDowell had his office in the church, right, right up the stairs outside this door in, uh, in an area that was later called Mount Ararat. <laughs> that, it was named that by, by um, Bishop Carpenter. Uh, Charles Klingman followed Middleton Barnwell as rector. He was here from 1924 to 1936. So he um, straddled both the, the great prosperity of the 1920s and the depths of the Depression. During his 12 years at the Advent, he received a number of calls to serve elsewhere, uh, including St. Thomas Fifth Avenue in New York, which is where Fred Tiardo came to us from, uh, Bishop of Louisiana, Bishop of Lexington, and also to serve as Dean of Virginia Theological Seminary. Uh, he turned all of those down uh, until he eventually accepted a, a call to be Bishop of Kentucky. Besides services on Sundays and daily during Lent, the church had a full-time social services director, paid for by the Women's Auxiliary. It sponsored a Boy Scout troop, and it provided an office, um, and the office was in the um, what had been the former rectory, which is about where Carpenter House stands now, uh, an office for the Reverend Robert C. Fletcher, who was minister to the deaf, who was himself deaf, 
and he's the father of Louise Fletcher. I don't know if I, I see one or two of you who are old enough to remember uh, her performance with Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for which she won the Academy Award. And that was where her father was. Well, during the Depression, there were many projects to help meet community needs. Mrs. Klingman helped start an annual horse show that for a few years was an important fundraiser to help service uh, community needs. And she was also involved with a number of other women in starting a long-running annual garden pilgrimage that was a, an important fundraiser. She's also remembered um, for sitting in the back of the church and if the service ran too long, she was said to raise a finger, which was assigned to her husband up there in the pulpit to wrap it up. Uh, okay, uh, it was under Mr. Klingman that Herb Grebe became the music director. And there may be some of you who remember when he was the music director still in the, uh, he, he continued until 1971. He was the music director for 45 years. Mike Lingo told me he remembered singing in the choir under Mr. Grebe. When Charles Klingman left to become Bishop of Kentucky, uh, the Advent called Charles Carpenter as rector. He came here from Georgia with his young family. Just two years later, however, Mr. Carpenter was elected Bishop of Alabama to succeed Bishop McDowell. Over the next 30 years, Bishop Carpenter maintained close ties with the Advent. Uh, he worshiped here with his family until Carpen and until uh, Carpenter House was built in 1954. He too had his office up the stairs in Mount Ararat. And he confirmed hundreds of Advent young people. So there's, there's a, an entire generation confirmed by Bishop Carpenter, who's remembered for, he was a big man, a wrestler at Princeton, and he's remembered for pressing down very hard with these enormous hands and saying, and daily increase. And Matt can finish the, the language, but I still remember just that. Well, um, by the way, his, his portrait is the largest, too. Right. right. <laughs> uh, Bishop Carpenter and his successor as rector, John Turner, shared a special relationship. Hugh Agricola, who succeeded Mr. Turner as rector, Hugh Agricola told me this story about how Mr. Turner came first to the Diocese of Alabama and then to the Advent. It seems that in 1935, Hugh Agricola's grandfather, Otto Agricola, who was a longtime senior warden at Holy Comforter in Gadsden, uh, Otto Agricola was traveling by train in Florida and he was changing trains in Jacksonville and had some time on his hands. So he stopped and asked a porter, is there an Episcopal church nearby? And he was told there's one right across the street. 
Mr. Agricola said that when his grandfather got back to Gadsden, he couldn't wait to announce that he had just heard the best sermon he had ever heard, and it was only two minutes long. Uh, according to the story, they voted on the spot to hire that preacher, and it was John Turner. Hugh Agricola said that then when Mr. Carpenter became bishop, Mr. Carpenter knew that John Turner was the best preacher in the state, and he arranged for Mr. Turner to be called to serve his favorite parish. John Turner was here for 27 years. He's the longest-serving rector out of a long string of folks who were here a good stretch of time. Uh, during those 27 years, the Advent fought in two wars. It witnessed, the members of the Advent witnessed the civil rights movement in Birmingham. And they saw an entire generation grow, be born and grow up under John Turner. Uh, most folks called him Uncle John. He was that uh, sort of beloved, I guess. Uh, milestones of his tenure include establishment of the day school, expansion of the physical plant, creation of three gardens. In 1964, just six months after the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church, Mr. Turner was involved in bringing Billy Graham to, be, to preach on Easter Sunday at Legion Field. He preached to an, excuse me, this was painted at the end of his life. When? 1965. Uh-huh, so it was actually the year, the year that he died. So most of the portraits, like the portrait I showed you of Mr. Murray, too, who went on to become presiding bishop, um, they are at the end of their lives. They're not always the portrait. They're not always what they looked like when they were the rector of the Advent. Uh, at that service, well, crusade where... Um, Billy Graham preached at Legion Field on Easter Sunday. There were 35,000 people, and it was an integrated group of folks, which is um, an unusual and important step in Birmingham, at least for opening the door. Uh, Mr. Turner was behind commissioning the statue of the Compassionate Christ and placing it on that prominent street corner on 20th Street. Just a year later, in 1966, on All Saints Day, the statue was dedicated to John Turner's memory following his unexpected death. He's the only Advent rector to die in office. Hugh Agricola succeeded uh, Mr. Turner 
he was always smiling, so much so that uh, Brother Pritchard told me this story about his unsmiling portrait. Uh, he, he said, when it was completed, his son, Mr. Agricola's son, Jack, was asked if it looked like his father. And Jack said, well, sure, I saw him look like that one time. <laughs> when I was 16, and I woke him up to tell him I'd wrecked the car. <laughs> Under Mr. Agricola, whom some, some people called Hugh Willie, the Advent experienced both continuity and innovation. The church celebrated its 100th anniversary, and it began using the new trial liturgy that eventually resulted in the 1979 prayer book. Holy Communion was celebrated daily, and there were regular healing services. The day school expanded significantly, and the Episcopal bookstore opened its doors. It was also a turbulent time in American life with conflict over the Vietnam War and wide-ranging social issues. Brinkley Morton came to the Advent in 1974. He brought his political experience as a former state senator from Mississippi. He was elected while he was in the sophomore class at Ole Miss, having Gone back, having come from service in World War II, and, and where he roomed with William Winter, who went on to become governor of Mississippi. Anyway, Brinkley brought his political experience. He also brought great patriotism. He was a hero in World War II, and you'll appreciate uh, his, you don't call them medals, but ribbons. ribbons. And someone knowledgeable would be able to interpret what all they stand for. So he brought his patriotism, and like so many Advent rectors, he also brought a deep love of God. Under Mr. Morton, the church uh, underwent a new spurt of growth, and perhaps especially important uh, was, in Frank Bromberg's words, he brought a whole new generation into the Advent. The, uh, the construction of Morton Hall was a sign of the growth in the church and the day school and of the Advent's continuing commitment to downtown when others were moving to the suburbs. Brinkley's wife, Virginia, inspired the women of the church to reestablish Lenten lunches as part of the weekday Lenten preaching that the Advent has offered the community for decades. And under Mr. Morton, in 1982, the Church of the Advent became the Cathedral of the Diocese. And that's why it's called, if anybody's wondered, the Cathedral Church of the Advent. Folks were not willing to give up um, their sense of being a church in a parish, even though... Uh, for the most part, there was great, um, great sense of calling to be the, the diocesan cathedral. 
growth accelerated under Larry Gibson, who supported, uh, uh, who who brought the church strong preaching and teaching, uh, an expanded program for children and young people, and the construction of a major new church office and day school facility. You know, it's everything <laughs> from here over to what's now Richard Arrington Junior Boulevard. Before that, there were three older buildings that to go to Sunday school classes, you would go into one and then go out on a fire escape and cross over a bridge and go into another building. And so um, great joy to, to uh, get one whole new facility. And you'll see some of the folks. There's uh, Peggy Spain McDonald, and I see Bill Tynes, and I think Elaine Cater. Folks, this was at the, the dedication, which was in the parking lot. Uh, Mayor Arrington was one of the many people who took part in the dedication. Uh, again, this signaled the churches and the school's continuing commitment to downtown Birmingham. The music program also flourished under Larry with a dedicated group of gifted musicians, uh, installation of the Grebe Williams organ, and Stephen Schaefer beginning his 25 years as organist and choir master. When Dean Gibson was called to St. Martin's Houston, uh, after 12 years of vigorous and thoughtful leadership, the advent called Paul Zoll. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> I, that must have been the first year he was he was here. Uh, uh, under Paul's leadership, we were graced with a strong Christian education program for all ages. I should stop a minute. I'm looking at Gil and Gil. Uh, it was under Larry, was it Gil, that you became uh, the first the first youth minister, the first youth minister here, the start of uh, a great blessing to us. Uh, so under, under Paul, we were graced with strong Christian education for all ages, a, a lively youth ministry, an extensive small group program, which Paul really initiated and nourished. We, uh, the Advent, Ever since it has had Lenten preaching, for many decades it's had preachers from uh, across the country. But with Paul, we saw people not only from across the country, but from around the world. And uh, under Paul expanded opportunities for lay ministry. We also had a year-long celebration of the Advent's 125th anniversary. And following uh, Paul, Frank Limehouse arrived in 2005 with his gospel-centered dedication. During his time here, the grace-driven student ministry, Rooted, was founded, and much that had gone before continued. Then in 2014, Andrew Pearson became our dean. So as I wrap up, I, I wanted to say as we enter this current chapter of 
our history and um, to remind us that that we're we're all part of to me history's alive and we're all part of shaping who we are and where we're headed as we enter this current chapter you can see that we stand on the shoulders of so many folks who've gone before us uh, laying the groundwork for important ministries, important things, and also um, being open to growth and change. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of so many people who've gone before us to create a holy and lively place of God out of what was a wilderness we talked about in 1871 when the city of Birmingham was founded. We've really barely skimmed the surface of the Advent story. Still, I hope I've given you some sense of the continuity, uh, some sense of ongoing renewal. And I hope I've deepened your sense of connectedness to, to who we are. Um, now, uh, Let's take questions and comments uh, and any thoughts you may have about being connected to our history. Yeah? There wasn't one. Um, in the Episcopal Church, you don't have to have a cathedral. And uh, when the Episcopal Church first came, well, maybe not first came to Alabama, but was first established with a bishop and, and a formal diocese. Uh, there were some very small churches in some of the oldest places, but there, there, were, uh, there was not a cathedral. So it had never had one. And in, in some respects, not, there not having been one, there, um, this is the cathedral. It is the seat of the bishop. At the same time, there's sometimes some tensions that, and there were at the time that uh, that the proposal was made for the advent to become the cathedral. There was some tension for some folks who felt like we're a parish church. We've always been a parish church. We don't need to be under a bishop. Uh, well, we are still, I think, both a, we carry a lot of that parish church identity and mentality. And at the same time, uh, I see it as a gift and an opportunity for us to be the cathedral and to be uh, a, a center of worship for the diocese. And some folks may not know, originally the Diocese of Alabama was defined by the state of Alabama. In the maybe late 60s, uh, it was divided. And so there's a, maybe it's the Diocese of the Gulf Coast, which includes Mobile, the Florida Panhandle. And George Murray, who had been 
the suffragan bishop under Bishop Carpenter uh, left to become the, the first bishop of the Gulf Coast. So the Diocese of Alabama goes from kind of the Black Belt north to the Tennessee line. Other questions, comments? Uh -huh. uh, I may have the dating wrong, but Thomas just corrected uh, Rector McDowell was in the 20s or 30s. And I just wonder about the significance of the camp that now will be named after uh, Rector McDowell, especially the difference in dating. And, and that's, I think, significant naming, and I just wonder what, why that was. Yes, and I uh, I don't know definitively, but I do know he uh, Bishop McDowell was first rector of the church in Auburn, and he had a very active ministry to students, to college students, and he traveled around the state with that, and he was bishop coadjutor, and then whatever, full-fledged bishop. Uh, he died unexpectedly, and um, Bishop Carpenter succeeded him. So that that's one piece of it. I, I know also Doug Carpenter, who we saw as the youngest boy in that picture of Bishop Carpenter with his family, he and his father were um, big advocates, deeply engaged with Camp McDowell, and uh, and I don't know exactly when Camp McDowell was established. Any of you all? So, so Bishop Carpenter did. Uh, there's a long stretch of time. So he named it both both for his predecessor, his immediate predecessor. But also, uh, it seems to me that Bishop McDowell did have a particular tie to younger people. That is a good question. Speak up. Yeah. I forgot all the details, but Doug Carpenter wrote, his, wrote a book uh -huh. about his father, and he tells the story of creating a and he just came out with a, a book about <laughs> Camp McDowell itself also. So uh -huh. I recommend that to you. I don't know if we care in the store or not. But I bet we do. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, we're out of time. The bells are tolling. Alice, thank you so much. This I, was so thank great. You. Thank you. I just want to say one last thing before you all leave. Uh, I mentioned Alice and I working on this uh, kind of history project together, at least for the last uh year and a half and one thing we were doing was thinking about the church's archives and uh, we just uh, worked with the Birmingham Public Library to donate all of our archival material that we've had uh, for many years to the public libraries now in the public domain they're working on going through it to put a lot of it in electronic format and whatnot um, and uh, that was a quite a big uh, undertaking the last several uh, decades you've been working on with some folks and volunteers and collecting a lot of that material and um, sort of uh, labeling it and whatnot. Um, so a lot of this stuff uh, will be available to you uh, either to go see at the library or online uh, pretty soon. Thanks again, Alice, and thank you all. Uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.